everybody. Welcome to uh, maybe next year, episode 20. I'm joined this evening by a uh, bunch of good buddies, Ethan Volbert. Thanks, Ethan, for stopping by tonight. It's good to be back. Um, Luke, Luke Rafson's here for the third week in a row. Luke, great to have you. Thanks, Carl. And uh, Dave Scogan, good to have you back, Dave. Hey, good to be back. We're going to talk about a few things tonight. And the first thing we're going to talk about a little bit, the, the, the most important part, I think, for us here as the show is to talk about the Major League Baseball's return to play plan and what uh, we're able to do there and, and what's uh, what's working and what's not working. Because that's, that's kind of the biggest thing here in, in the sports world um, and what we've been dealing with, I guess. And, and the question that I'm going to ask you, you know, for all you guys is, uh, is this something that in the end is going to happen or not? Um, there's been so many different aspects of it that have just, I think for the average fan, are really confusing. Uh, to see it play out, I think everybody wants baseball to return, and we just don't know. Uh, watching ESPN and, and everything else every every week, we don't know. Is, is it coming? Is it not coming? Is it going to be here? Is it not going to be here? What do we do? Um, you know, we're looking at a, a world now, and I think just, you know, my own thoughts on it before I open up to you guys is that we're in a world now, we're dealing with a, a, a global pandemic. Um, we're dealing with, you know, social injustice that's happening in our country. We're dealing with unemployment and then we have major league baseball fighting over money. And it's hard to, it's hard to watch. It's hard to see it happen. Um, and I think we just, we, we want to see baseball return. Um, and so my questions, I look at, you know, I asked you guys here um, as we stand uh, as it bickers back and forth between the, the players and the owners and stuff like that. Is, is there somebody that's at fault? Is there somebody that needs to, figure it out or, or are we just in a place now where this is just not going to happen um you know luke i'll ask you first uh when you look at this whole thing play out is how do you see this is it is it the players is it the owners who needs to figure this out first well uh this this is about as big of a cluster train wreck whatever you want to call it as you could possibly get um i do think both sides make very valid arguments um, both have some very uh, solid stances uh, in terms of where they are in the negotiations. I don't think either one, either side, the owners or the players, bear a significant significant portion of the blame for where we've gotten to. Um, if, if we're looking at it objectively, I think both sides present an argument around the, the money aspect of this, where the players want to be played what they were contractually uh, obligated to be paid. Um, and so their, their stance is we will play any number of games that uh, you, the owners, and the league would uh, see as the, uh, the correct number of games, whether it be 81 or 114 or 40. Uh, but we want to get paid the full prorated portion of our salary. Let's look at that then before we go on, because um, I think it is important. Uh, talking about people say, well, what's pro, what does it mean to be prorated? I mean, what does that mean? We, we hear that all the time talking about this stuff. Okay, let, let's look at it this way. Okay, so let's say that your salary is a million dollars a year. So if you're going to play 100, 160 games, that's $1 million. Okay, prorated, let's play 72, I get $444,000. let us play 50, I get $308,000. So that's prorated. The biggest the issue is that we've had it gone back and forth is each side, the, the MLB said their first offer was, okay, let's play 82 games. You're guaranteed $103 billion. MLB players came back and said 114 games, $2.86 billion. 
MLB came back and said, okay, let's go 76 games. $989 million guaranteed. The MLB Players Association came back and said, okay, let's go 89 games, $2.24 billion. MLB came back and said, okay, 72 games. MLB came back and said, done. We're done. We're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna talk about this anymore. I said we're done. Give us a time and place to show up, we'll show up. And that was it. That was the last that they had. You know, no one's going to completely win here. At what point do you say, what's the greater good, Dave? Where do we where do we find that happy medium? Yeah, right now I don't know if you're going to. And that's that's the tricky and the sad part as a as a fan sitting at home about the whole thing. Is you know, the the players have pretty much said, like you said, name it when and where and we're gonna show up. And then the owners basically balked on it and said, ah, you know what, actually maybe maybe we're gonna we're gonna pull some strings on you again. Um, so everybody just kind of throws their hands up and they sit and stare at each other across the table and nothing gets done. Um, yeah. you know, the, the optics to the public are terrible with everything going on in the, in the world right now. Um, and you get guys, you know, multimillionaires basically all around the, all around this, this situation, um, balking over, uh, what anybody would love to have for not only an annual salary, but, you know, some people even in a decade worth of, of, uh, of salary at this juncture. Um, I just don't know how it's going to go forward. Um, they're going to have to sit down, you know, whether it be a small group of people, um, the commissioner is going to have to step up and, and start getting the conversation going again. Um, we're already at the end of June or middle of June, two weeks into July. Uh, we all know what kind of weather comes in Minnesota uh, <laughs> earlier than, than later. Um, so if they're going to get a season going of any stature, it, it's got to start very, very soon. That conversation has got to start now. Well, we're at the, you know, they're at the lowest public opinion since 1994 since the last you know the last strike basically and we're dealing with all the stuff that's going on in the world right now the previous plan had them starting like six days ago i think was when what was it six days ago that uh spring training quote unquote was supposed to start games were supposed to start july 4th well we're nowhere near that that's not going to happen um you know i think the biggest thing and i'll ask you about that loop too or, or ethan uh manfred said that Last week, we will unequivocally have a season. 100%, we will have a season at some point. Yesterday, he came back and said, well, I don't know. And so players have jumped on that and said, you know, you're, you got a commissioner that doesn't know what's going on. You know, so do you see this happening? I mean, one way or the other, are we in just a place now where we just, we don't know? I mean, definitely in a place now we don't know. I think it, it wasn't a very smart move coming out and saying that, yeah, we're going to have it for sure because nothing's for sure. And it just 2020 keeps getting worse every single day. <laughs> so nothing's for sure. Now, is there a possible way? Yeah. Is it going to take a little middle ground between the players taking some things that they don't want, the uh, MLB taking some things that they don't want, and everyone giving a little bit so that the fans can get what they want? Um, that's what it's going to take. Um, and unfortunately it's, it's a thing where we've talked about it before that all sports, much like movie and Hollywood and all these things are expendable. It's not necessarily something yeah. we need. Now is it yeah. something we want? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it's going to take a lot of middle ground to make everybody happy and make the public happy. And then, you know, continue to move forward in the future. So you don't ruin MLB forever for everybody. Yeah. That's a, it's a good point. Um, I think it's a good point because we talked about a little bit um, that the collective bargaining agreement ends in December of 2021. So what they're doing now, 
the, the, the struggle that they're having now is going to spill over. So it's not just this year that we're seeing there are going to be problems. We're going to see problems next year. So unless they kind of come to some kind of consensus this year, we're going to see some really big ripple effects the next couple of years. You know, I guess look at the options right now where we're at. You look at like a 50 game option with 10 teams making the postseason, 60 games with 16 making it. I mean, is there an, is there an answer, Dave? Is there a response here that, that we can actually make this happen? Or are we just going to watch this absolutely unravel? Yeah, you know, again, the commission's got to start the conversation. It's got to come from the top. Um, the owners are, are, are clearly set in their ways, and they had their mind made up, maybe even from the get-go, of, of what kind of season finance benefited them the most. And I think that, that 48 to 50-game season is probably it with prorated salaries. It's damage control on their expenses, yet there's still somewhat of a season that fans can kind of get behind and, and feel good about and cheer their, cheer their team on. Um, but their their overhead is, is drastically less. Um, I, I think at this point now they're just stalling and waiting for that time. You know, the, the players came out and said name, when, and where. Um, and then they kind of pulled the strings out from underneath them. Yeah. Um, Tony Clark has even came out and, and called it bad faith in negotiations, which is, is probably the biggest uh, um, slap in the face you could give uh, the other side of the table in negotiations. Um, as far as, you know, disrespectful comments, it's, it's not good. Um, the, the players have probably a right to be mad right now. The way this all shook out, they they were ready to go and they had the cover pulled from underneath them. But um, I, I, they're a million miles. They're, they're they're a million miles apart. I think the biggest thing that I ask you, Luke, um, when I look at this whole thing and, and reading about it and stuff like that, and I you know trying to decide, am I on the side of the players or the owners or, or neither or whatever? I look at it this way, and I, I saw this quote, and this was, this really hit me, and, and it said. Basically, um, the players now are being asked on this prorated thing to take the brunt for business losses. You know, we know that without fans, there are going to be losses. But do they see? Do they see the positive end of it when there are profits? So should they take the hit now when there's business losses, and then accept the fact that they're not going to take any kind of profit when there are actually good times? Is that fair to them? Well, I think we should look at this at a little bit more of a macro level than just players and owners. Um, we're cutting out the, the third leg of the stool here, and that's the fans. And so mm. um, mm -hmm. when you have really, really lean years, now think of baseball as any other company, any other uh, any other employer that we may work for or our family members work for, um, a lever that is often pulled in leaner years, tougher economies are furloughs, layoffs, a lot, of, a lot of those things are happening in today's society. Um, companies want to stay and remain liquid and solvent for the future. And they need to control their operating expenses uh, in the current state of affairs in order to remain an organization moving forward. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily fair to say the players are the only ones bearing the brunt of um, a shortened season, reduced pay. Uh, because this has an economic ripple effect on the fans. So yeah. let's just let's just look at this very factually. Um, if there is a return to play, the there there will no be nowhere near the same attendance and same gate revenue as there would have been in a season that, like any other normal season, no pandemic. Yeah. So you don't have a revenue you don't have a revenue stream that's as uh, robust or normal. Uh, as it was when all the current contracts were negotiated. So right now we have 
we have a, a reduction in revenue. And from the player's perspective who want full proration, that would mean no change in expense. So from a business standpoint, it makes no sense. Um, what does that mean for fans going forward? If your organizations operate at a loss, <laughs> the cost is going to get passed on to the, the, the consumer, Good. much like your health insurance, yeah. much like much like any other organization. Um, health insurance, great example. Uh, members of uh, that that buy pay premiums for health insurance uh, get overwhelmingly sick during the year. Yeah. How does the health insurance company cover that cost? They tr- they raise your premiums next mm-hmm. year. That's what's going to happen to the fans if these organizations are run at a loss. You're going to have uh, ticket sales uh, probably decline because the ticket prices will go way up. You're going to have concession stand. Uh, people bitch about the price of beer, the price of <laughs> yeah. food, nachos, whatever. Imagine what it will be like in 2021, 2022, mm-hmm. if uh, these organizations operate at a loss. And so this is a very delicate balance between uh, having a season and understanding that having a season has much more of a social impact than just um, a, a financial or monetary impact. But how do we how do we operate our business so that we give the fans who are our ultimate shareholders what what they crave, uh, paying our employees a wage that's respectable, but commensurate to the economic situation that we're in um, so that we can sort of maintain normalcy in the years to come. And I think that's where the MLB owners are trying so hard to leverage their, uh, their business knowledge, their actuaries, their financial analysts to say, what is, what does next year even look like? Are we going to have attendance that just snaps back to normal next year? I highly doubt it. So what's the risk of next year? of our revenue stream. So, so I see both sides of it. Um, and it's a very delicate balance between all three legs of the stool. That's such a, that's such a great question because I think that we all kind of have, we just think about this year, you know, what's going to happen. Okay. Well, we're not going to play this year. There's going to be fans this year. Well, what happens if a second wave hits or a third wave, then what happens next year? We don't have fans in the, in the stands next year. I think owners look right now, they want to stem the bleeding. I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? I mean, they're looking, they're asking these guys to take 25, 35, whatever percent uh, prorated salaries. And we think, okay, well, that's that's not fair. These, these guys are only playing 60 games or whatever. But how much is this hemorrhage going to happen? I mean, how much farther is it going to go beyond this year? I mean, does this assuming that next year in April, we're going to be showing up to the baseball field and, and going to the game and buying a beer? Yeah, and buying our tickets exactly. and stuff like that. And I think so. I think people kind of see this. And I, I my first instinct was like, OK, decide with the, the players and, and what they're you know, what their fight is for. And I understand that. But um, the bleeding might not be <laughs> it might not be just this year. Um, and I think nobody really we don't know that based on what's going to happen with COVID and stuff like that. But I think looking at last, you know, this, the, the you know, the players saying we're done. We are done, uh, you know having a conversation we're done offering this up we're done having you know what our plan is going to be uh well if if they're not going to talk to one another right now how in the world are we going to find some kind of common ground for having a 50 game season with 16 postseason teams where where are they going to come to that common ground on and how are they going to sit down together and have a conversation it feels right now like they are a million miles apart from each other 
it, it really feels like they're a long, long ways off from having any kind of conversation together, you know? So I guess my next question would be then, and I didn't ask this is that, okay, so let's say we let, let's boil this down, which is sad to say, but let's boil it down to saying we have a 50 game season and we have, there's 10 teams that make the postseason out of that 50 games. And there you have a, so you got a, a world series ring. You won the title out of 50 regular season games, 10 postseason take game teams and no fans. How do you feel? Do you feel like you've earned, I mean, is that a real world series ring? <laughs> Did you earn that ring, Ethan? I believe so. And because of this reason is that the circumstances are the same for everybody. Um, everybody's going to be dealing with the same stuff. It's not like anyone came in um, with a major advantage, not dealing with something that another team isn't. So I think everything's there. It's going to be whoever takes advantage of what's going on and, and can play good baseball throughout the games that they're given and then takes advantage of um, the opportunity in the postseason. Um, you're still the best of this year. Uh, no matter what circumstances are going on, you're still the team that played the best when you needed to play the best, no matter what happened. So I think it's still a legit title. It's not the same by any means, but it's still legit. And I know, I, you know, Luke, I know from talking to you that you you tend to put a little asterisk next to like the the Astros winning a couple of years ago or whatever and, and, and Barry Bonds and stuff like that. But um, I mean, I guess I'll ask you and Dave, do you see if we end up in that 50 game stratosphere, is it a true champion coming out of there? Yeah, yes, they are a true champion. Uh, yes, it's a level playing field in the sense that everybody's operating within the same boundaries. Um, but but certainly now when the conversation comes up about comparison of years or comparison of teams, there's that argument doesn't really hold a lot of weight. Um, certainly, it's, if you do have a 50-game-ish season, it becomes, you know, you are probably the most efficient World Series champion. Uh, yeah. You managed your talent, you managed your roster probably more efficiently than other teams, um, or your, you know, your team... Uh, prepared better in the ex, quote extended off season. Um, it's, it's still a true champion. Um, I don't, there should definitely not be an asterisk, um, but it's just a, it's a nuanced world series. You, you can't really, uh, you know, you can't footnote it any more than that. It's a nuanced world series. Well, how weird that be, you know, Dave, think about that. Let's say the twins make the world series and they're, they're playing uh, the Atlanta Braves. And it's a there's no fans in the stands, and they win a seven game World Series title. I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, is that that doesn't have the same juice as a '91 World Series, you know, lasted bad Gene Larkin kind of feel to it? Do they? Is it? Do you feel the same way about that, Dave? Yeah, as a fan, it would be uh, amazing and heartbreak at the same time. You know, you, you still want your team to win, but at the same point, to to not have it be you know, what you're used to or, or, or for the fact of, of Minnesota fans to have the chance to go, um, you know, the, the, the atmosphere isn't going to be the same. I mean, to me, there's, there's nothing like watching playoff baseball on TV. Um, With a bunch of fans. You can, you can, you can, you can, you can feel the electricity through the television. You know, yeah. you sit on the edge of your seat and I, I just don't know how I'm going to feel. It's still going to be intense, but there's, you know, with no fans there and is, is it going to be the same? I guess. I don't know. I really don't. Um, you know, and it's, this is going to make things so wide open. 
Um, health is going to be a, a massive ingredient to this, into the success of teams. When you talk about a possible 50-game schedule, um, each one of your starters in a five-man rotation is going to get five or excuse me, ten starts. That's it. Yeah. So it, it, it's a sprint. Um, you can't afford injuries. Uh, any, anything longer than a two-week injury is going to be massively detrimental to your lineup. Um, depth is going to be key, and it, it's, it opens the door big time for, for everybody. Well, I guess the, the next question then is if we're looking at, and we'll talk about with the NBA stuff too, is like, okay, so what if, what if stars decide to sit out? You know, what if what if the best players in the league decide to sit out and the ones that play are these young rookies and first and second year guys that need that that need those, you know, those years, you know, as part of their contract or whatever, end up playing and we end up with like kind of almost like a replacement player kind of situation. Um, you know, and we we don't have our let's say Josh Donaldson, let's look at the twins aspect. Josh Donaldson doesn't play, uh, Nelson Cruz doesn't play. You know those kind of things. Those top guys don't play. Are we looking at this thing differently? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I I mean, then we're getting to the point where I don't know. That's it's tough, and it's definitely not out of the question by any means. Um, as a fan, you kind of expect them to play, um, but you can't really blame them for not. But I, where do you draw the line? You know what? It's just in that big bag of unknowns that you that, that's out there right now. Luke, do you see this as yeah. whatever, how would this plays out? Do you see this as a legitimate world series champion? Yeah. It, the more that I sort of absorb and, and let this marinate, um, just given the, the point we're at in the calendar year, it probably, and this is going to sound super pessimistic, but I think starting the season up at, at this point in the calendar year probably does more harm than good. Um, I, I don't think we would see uh, as many uh, players playing uh, that we would anticipate to play. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, that the pitcher out of Tampa Bay, I, I can't think of his name, uh, has said he won't, he will not play whatsoever unless he is paid his full prorated share. Um, and I know other players feel the same way too. I think during the season up, I think what we would see is, is we would see a lot of the game stars not play. I think that would turn public opinion uh, to a very negative way. Um, you know, and I think, I think right now the public opinion is sort of pinned, uh, you know, it's, it's shared evenly. The blame is sort of being shared evenly across both the owners and, and the players. Really? You think um, so? But I, you think it's even? I right think now? so. I think it's even. Um, you know, the the sentiment that I continue to hear is, well, it's millionaires arguing over over pennies. Well, let's again, let's look at this at this objectively. People live lifestyles that are commensurate to the amount of money that they make. Everybody on this podcast lives a life that is in alignment. At least I think so. We're all fairly mature guys. Um, we live lifestyles that are commensurate to the amount of money we make reasonably professional baseball players, professional football players, professional basketball players. Yes. There are outliers on both ends where you have extremely, extremely frugal professional athletes. And you also have athletes that blow all of their money. But I feel like the majority of both professional 
athletes, as well as owners, live a lifestyle that's commensurate to the amount of money that they make. And so, yes, I agree. If you're a professional baseball player, I want to get paid what I signed up to play uh, to, to get paid for my performance. Um, but if we are looking at this objectively and the economic times that we're at, uh, would you rather? Would you rather? make 80% of what you are supposed to earn or would you rather earn 0%? Um, you know, I think Forbes came out with a study or a, or a survey of professionals and overwhelming majority, something in the like the 80 or 90% would vote for a reduced uh, part, a, a short-term reduction in salary to avoid layoffs of staff. That's a good um, point right there. I, That's a great I, point. I think players should take that mentality. I, I realize that your lifestyle is commensurate and in alignment with the money that you make. But to me, making money, and again, that argument also can be directed toward the owners. Um, I would rather there be a revenue stream of something versus nothing. Um, so that, that was a mouthful, but... Um, I, I really don't see the two sides coming together. There is precedent for lockout in Major League Baseball. We've seen it in 1994. I think we're too far along. I think starting it up now uh, probably does more damage long-term to the game than just wiping the slate clean and coming into 2021 with a better plan. That's that's the best point right there. And I think, I think it, it, like I said, to start it, we're looking at uh, the, the pandemic, unprecedented unemployment, you know, and, and and we have these guys that are bickering over dollars and cents, and, and it, it just it doesn't seem to fit the the motif of what we're going through right now. I think where people just want to see baseball, you know, we just want to see something, and and it's they're missing the point right now um, for what we're going through. The rest of the world is going through, and I think that they need to find some kind of common ground. And I just everything that we've watched and seen, they they're nowhere near figuring this out. We're, we're a long ways off from figuring this out. It's not going to happen in the next couple of days. Um, even if they come to a con, you know, consensus about money, then what's going to happen then with, with games and postseason and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's too bad to see. Uh, we're going to cut that. We'll cut that off and we'll come back with the next segment. Thanks a lot, guys. He did go to the U. Welcome back to uh, episode 20 of uh, maybe next year. We're going to talk a little about this, uh, about the twins draft. Um, normally in a, you know, a regular year, we wouldn't be able to talk a lot about the twins because they have 35 different draft picks, but this year they only had four um, just because of what everything is going on. Uh, their four draft picks are pretty interesting. I guess we'll, we'll start with the first round. Uh, they had the overall pick 27. They took Aaron Sabato out of North Carolina, uh, 6'2", first baseman, 21 years old. Uh, huge power bat, probably the second biggest bat out of the, the draft that there was, but he's below average uh, arm fielding. Uh, he's not going to be rushed to the to the top. Um, he's going to be either a first baseman or DH, which is kind of a you know weird thing for a first round pick. But um, you know he had 18 home runs as a freshman last year in 19. He had seven home runs already in 19 games this year before the you know season got cut short. So. I don't know, Sabato. Has anybody heard uh, anything about Sabato at all, Dave? Uh, Luke, I know you guys did a little bit of research, or whatever. Uh, anything on Sabato? 
just a big dude. You know, you, you watch the highlights, you know, you hear about the 18 home runs. I think he had seven this year in 16 games. But, you know, and maybe it's the North Dakota, but it, he reminds me of Travis Hafner. When you watch him yeah. run down the baseline, um, you're like, this guy's going to have power, but he's probably never going to play in the field. And as you know, you, the way you watch him move, he just doesn't translate to defense. Um, but raw power, 6'2", 230. Uh, the guy looks put together. He only hit 343 for average, too. So not only a little yeah. pop, but, uh, but hit for decent average this freshman year. Uh, second round, uh, 59th pick, uh, Alaric. Sulane out of Tennessee, an outfielder, uh, another high power guy, uh, a, a corner outfielder, not doesn't have the speed to be a, a center fielder. Uh, hit 357 with 11 home runs last year, uh, was 16 for 60 this year before things got cut short with five home runs. So, uh, another guy at bats, you know, Luke, that's what we look at it like they're, they're drafting bats for a reason, yeah. And, and both guys come out of. Premier college baseball uh, conferences. You got Aaron Sabato out of North Carolina in the ACC and Alaric Soleri out of the SEC in Tennessee. And they kind of fit the mold of what Derek Falvey and Thad Levine are trying to do. Um, they're trying to bring in established college hitters um, who are mature. They hit for power. Um, you know, that seems to be the direction that the organ or the um, the leadership of the Twins uh, want to go. They want to go to a more offensive laden team. They want to draft pitchers and, and develop pitchers who have high upside. Um, at the same time, um, they're starting to bring in a little bit more of the sabermetrics angle. Uh, so looking at guys who are uh, have really high upside on the analytic uh, component of their game. And so this draft is, is pretty part and parcel to what they're trying to do. And um, I'm glad that they have a plan. It felt like in years past where, um, you know, the twins would do what the twins did, you know, try and find high school kids uh, with some talent and, you know, large upside. And I think uh, this, this move or this strategy to go with established bats, uh, develop, develop pitchers that have the upside um, and bring in guys that uh, from an analytics perspective, make a whole lot of sense in terms of the fit and feel of the team. Um, I'm pretty pleased with, uh, with, the, with the picks this year. It's really interesting you say that. I, I think looking at, you know, we're, we're four years now into the new regime um, with Falvey and Levine. And in those four years, their first pick every year has been a hitter. Um, they they basically are, are operating the idea that we're going to take the hitters, the, the well-established hitters first, and we'll develop pitchers later on because of the, you know, injury aspect or whatever it is. Um, it's really hard to peg, a, a, you know, a big pitcher permanently or whatever it might be. Um, their fourth round pick then, their next one was uh, Marco Rea, uh, right-handed pitcher out of the out of a high school in Texas, six feet tall, 17 years old, throws about 93, 94 miles an hour, great spin rate, um, great mechanics. But like you said, I think it's important that it's hard to peg a pitcher. It really is. And, you know, Dave, you're a pitcher. Uh, Luke, you're a pitcher. I'm a pitcher. I think you see a guy that's six feet tall and throws that hard. You worry about mechanics. You worry about arm uh, length, uh, whether he's going to be injured, you know, things like that. And I think that's kind of where they're at right now. Um, and then you go on into the fifth round where there was an outfielder uh, from Hawaii, uh, the high power kind of guy, not a lot, you know, low on the hit run field, kind of below average kind of stuff or whatever. But um, do you see it, you know, a, a, a a pattern developing basically amongst those draft picks. 
Yeah, I believe so. I think there's sort of a trend that Minnesota's going with. And I think overall, I think they really did a good job. I think uh, I obviously have probably done the least amount of research, um, not necessarily by choice, but I think just reading here and listening to you guys, I think they did a good job with what they've been able to put together. Luke? The other the other angle that I've sort of seen this strategy from Falvey and Levine is when you look to buy players uh, and when you look at trading chips, position players tend to have longer uh, contractual sort of setups. Uh, you know, you're looking at restructured deals of, you know, 10, 11, 12 plus years. Look at the Bryce Harper deal, multi-year, Mike Trout, multi-year. The likelihood that you uh, would have pitchers that are uh, efficient enough to be maybe a number three starter on your organization and your rotation, um, demanding that long of a contract are pretty slim. And so I think there's there's sort of a secondary strategy here to draft, uh, acquire established hitters and potentially move them in the future and use them as uh, draft capital um, to acquire those established pitchers who, you know, rather than the flip side is trying to uh, peg pitchers early in the draft. Uh, They don't materialize. And then you are, you know, you're light on both pitching and hitting potentially. And now you need to go out and buy a bat. Bats are more expensive in my opinion, over longer term than pitching is Um, the, the difference between, you know, a Max Scherzer uh, for his worth or a Garrett Cole for his worth and the number of wins they bring in versus, you know, Kenta Maeda and his value and his win totals. I don't think there's much disparity there as there is between Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, and Josh Donaldson. So I think that there may be a secondary strategy there in, in drafting big bats and using them as bait uh, later down the line. So, Dave, what do you think about their, their strategy right now with pitchers and hitters? Yeah, I think it's good, you know. You look at a kid like this, Marco Rea, he's 17 years old. You know, he, he's 6'1", 100, with 170 pounds, I think, is is the most I saw in a couple of different sites. They had one site even had him down 160 pounds. So he's 17 years old. He's a Texas A&M commit. Um, you know, they're going to have to try and sign him, basically, away from Texas A&M. So they don't have a third-round pick, so they might have a little extra slot money that they can pay above, you know, his slotted, slotted spot to convince him to sign at that point. You look at 94 miles an hour. He's got two good breaking balls by by ratings uh, and a changeup. What they said shows potential with high spin rate on his breaking balls. At that point, you, you already have the electric stuff, the potential stuff. Now you're just working on body uh, and getting this kid built up strong enough so at six foot throwing that hard he won't break down. Um, so you're, you're developing a kid now. He's 17 years old. He's already throwing 94. You put a few, you know, two, three, four years on him where where you're. You're not forcing him too fast. Um, you're looking at a 22, 23-year-old kid who's going to have electric, possibly electric stuff. And then he's able to step into a rotation and a couple of years down the road, you know, turn into a possible high-end guy. Um, I, I like I like that pick in particular. Um, and you look at, like, Sabato. You know, one of the things that stuck out on Sabato when reading some stuff, uh, he did face Max Mayer this year, two for three with a double and a sack fly. So these oh, college wow. guys – the hitters, the college guys are coming in ready to face, you know, high-end pitching. Um, and the pitchers, they're going to give the pitchers time to develop the body, to keep them healthy, uh, especially with the with the arms that throw gas. I um, mean, you know, like we were just talking, six six foot throwing 94, that's that's a lot of, a lot of strain yeah. uh, on that elbow. So, 
Yeah, that's that's a you talk about Sabato hitting. I didn't know that that he faced Rio. Um, but I think that we all know that here. You know, I don't know how tall you are, Luke and, and Dave. Same thing. I think we're all about around the six feet area. Um, that throwing that hard with that that height is is hard on your arm. You know, it is. And I think that I remember being, uh, you know, probably a junior in, in college and, and sitting back. There was a some scouts that had come to see a, a kid from University of Mary, and he was six feet tall and threw about 93, 94 miles an hour. And, and talking to them, and they said it's it's really hard that they would draft a kid that height that throws that hard because they worry about arm arm problems. Um, you know, so to see that is, but looking at Ray a little bit, his mechanics were, were really, really good. Um, yep. and they talked about great spin rate and stuff like that. I think that, you know, obviously they do their due diligence when they, when they're drafting a kid like that, but, um, it's definitely something that I think that the average fan doesn't think about when you see a kid, oh, he throws 95 miles an hour. That's great. That's a, that's a first round pick right there. But, um, when you are smaller in stature, that does, that, there's a lot more impact on your arm, um, health wise and stuff like that. I think you probably don't see that um the average fan but okay so anyways looking at that okay okay so the twins were you know we knew that the draft is shortened this year um and 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 only five rounds the twins only had four picks how do you think that how do you see only having you know as opposed to the regular you know what is it 40 rounds there is um how does only having four picks impact long term where they're at and what they're going to do luke yeah, that's a very interesting question, um, especially considering the potential contraction of minor league farm systems. Um, I think it, you know, the this is an industry wide sort of phenomenon. It's going to impact every team in in a somewhat uh, relative manner. Um, I frankly don't know don't know how this projects out long term. Um, you know, hopefully next year there's a, a you know a move back to the normal draft, 35 rounds. Um, if it probably gives more players more opportunity longer than they may have had in the first place, just based on a numbers game, uh, trying to fill out rosters, uh, keeping guys around longer than maybe they would have had there been a fresh, you know, uh, 30 to 40 guys coming in this year. So it's interesting. I, I don't know that it'll have as much of an impact, uh, as a ripple effect, just due to the sheer number of minor league players. But, you know, as we contract minor league systems to reflect sort of the, the economic situation that we're in, I think that has probably more of an impact than, you know, I drafted four guys. That's, it's interesting to say that because we talked a little bit about that on previous shows about contracting minor league teams. That's one of the things that, you know, Major League wants to do is get rid of, uh, you know, 30, 40, whatever it is, minor league organizations. So, uh, does this have a big impact? I guess and the next question is, uh, we're going to look at, you know, I think that Luke, I'm interested in what you have to say about this too, because we had the highest draft pick in go for history since, uh, um, who was it? Paul Molitor. I think it was the last one was drafted. Yeah. Max, Max Meyer got drafted number three overall. Um, and if you watch him at all, the last, I have watched him a little bit in the big 10 network and stuff like that. We've seen him a little bit, uh, pretty, pretty impressive kid. Uh, went number three overall to Miami, right-handed pitcher. Um, his fastball, upper 90s. Just his wipeout, his slider was kind of what really set him apart. Um, basically the best out pitch of any any person in the draft. Pretty incredible. Um, you know, a Minnesota kid, 
Um, could be they, you know, even talking about him, this little talking about if, if there is a shortened season, he could possibly be a bullpen guy right out of the bat, right off the bat. Um, you know, as a 1920 year old kid playing and, and, you know, pitching on the bullpen for Miami, not to say that Miami's going to be in a, in, a, in a race or whatever, but if you have a 50 game schedule, who, who's to say that Miami's not in a race, you know, as opposed to 162 games, um, you know, so he could be there. Uh, so what do you what do you know about Max Myers? I guess a little bit, uh, Luke, and, and and what are your thoughts on him maybe actually being there, a contributor in the first this first call back into into games? Yeah, uh, I, you know, electric stuff is putting it pretty lightly. Um, I think his fastball and slider were both graded above seventy uh, on the grading scale, which is phenomenal. Um, that's plus plus stuff. Uh, slider is right around 92, 93, and it, it basically just disappears. Yeah, um, Fastball, like you say, sits in the 97, 98 range. I think he's touched 100. Um, played for Team USA. Um, he he moved to a starter role with the Gophers, so he was a closer um, as a freshman and then yes. moved into a starting role. Um, I think he got drafted by the perfect organi- organization. Uh, if you're Max Meyer, um, you have an organization that went through a bit, a bit of a fire sale of talent as of late. Uh, the Jeter sort of regime has gotten rid of a lot of talent there uh, to sort of beef up a younger team, a younger organization. And to your point, if if we do see a 50-game season or about there, um, everybody's in the race. It's a sprint. And, you know, I I look at Max Meyer and I see Kelvin Herrera from the Kansas City Royals World yes. Series team. Yeah. Back end, smaller guy, throws absolute petrol and has a slider that just Harry Houdini out of nowhere, right? <laughs> and I think Max Meyer has a lot of success. I think he is a fast-track player. He's a very mature pitcher. He knows how to pitch. And he developed a changeup this year that also had pretty yep. high grades yep. uh, uh, for for him. He used to be a two-pitch guy. Now he's a three-pitch guy. Um, I, I project him as a closer, a very legitimate closer in the big leagues. Uh, he could he could be a very efficient setup man early in his career uh, if there's a you know a, a, an established closer in front of him. But this is a back end bullpen arm that I mean tremendous tremendous stuff. Um, I'm I'm super excited to to watch him play and watch his career unfold. Yeah, I am too. I I, I like a lot of these setup. Dave, I don't know how much you looked into Max Meyer. Um, I think you probably have a pretty good uh, insight into that too if you had. Yeah, you know, like you said, electric stuff. And you talked about that wipeout slider. And, and the first highlight I saw, and of course I'd already known he'd been drafted by the Marlins at that point, it reminded me of Nicky Anderson, who mm. the Marlins got a hold of from the Twins. Yeah. You know, the, the you know similar stature. I think Anderson's got a few inches on him. But 94-95 fastball, wipeout slider. And what the Marlins did with him, like Luke, you just said, he's in a great situation. You know, they, they took Anderson, they flipped him to a relief spot right away, then they traded him to the race, and we saw what he did in the postseason. Um, the guy was basically unhittable. Um, yeah. It's electric stuff. The the six foot 185 does make me also think that he's maybe possibly more of a closer than a starter guy, just again, based off of the stature that we've talked about you know, quite a bit here tonight. But, but electric stuff, um, I do feel bad for, for the U of M. Um, alumni, the fans, everybody that they got, they missed out on a year of yeah. this guy in their home state, you know, yeah. being able to watch this guy pitch, um, you know, a guy of that talent right there, homegrown and, and you missed out on a season. It's it kind of stinks, but it's fun to watch the guy go, 
uh, on to bigger and better things now. He, he he has been fun to watch. I you know how much highlight tape you've watched on him. I've I've watched quite a bit to whatever I watched on the Big Ten Network and stuff like that. But really really fun to watch. Um, highest he is tied for the highest ever golfer with uh, Paul Molitor at the number three pick. But uh, he, he the highest pitcher since uh, Glenn Perkins went uh, what was he twenty second. In 2014, and and who was it? Uh, you know, Luke may know better than I did. Uh, the kid from Lakeville went in the 30, yeah, 33rd, I think, in 2010. What was his name? Uh, yep, Mike Kwasnicka. Kwasnicka. The there we go. The, and that's that's yeah. what I was looking so he, for. Him and him and I came in as freshmen at the yeah. U. So Mikey, Mikey got drafted by the Astros. Ah, he's yep. from Lakeville, though. You can't you can't give him too much props. So it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> So, all right, good. To, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing him, and, and hopefully he does hopefully get a, a you know season here where you can see him a little bit uh, when it comes down to it. So, all right, we'll wrap that up. We'll come back a little bit with the NBA and what their plan is. Welcome back to maybe next year, this third second here. We're going to have uh, – there's a bunch of different stuff we want to talk about. But first off, we're going to talk a little bit about Delvin Cook. We didn't do any Vikings stuff. Um, he came up because he's uh, going to hold out apparently. Um, last year he ran for 1,100 yards, 13 touchdowns. Um, he's he's on slate to make 1.7 million dollars next year, um, which to you and me and everybody else is uh, fantastic. <laughs> Be a great payday for us, but um, he's not happy with it. And I, I guess I, I'm not I'm not that I'm not that Viking expert that can tell you he should make this X amount for this X amount or whatever. I guess my question is, and Luke kind of had a good point, um, why you think him holding out is probably not the best idea for him. Yeah, if I'm Delvin Cook, this isn't this isn't the right decision. Um, you know, I think his, uh, his camp came out and said that he felt disrespected by the first offer that the Vikings brought to the table, which was basically the Melvin Gordon money, somewhere in there on the $8 million a year range. Um, and what Dalvin Cook is looking for is 10.7 you know, Ezekiel Elliott, Christian McCaffrey money. Yeah, he wants around the 13 ish. Okay, so not even close. Um, you got to look at this from a talent longevity uh, sort of perspective. Running back tenure in the NFL shortens pretty much every year. Uh, the useful life of a running back in the NFL is, is extremely short. Um, it's a passing league. Uh, we've seen that. We've established that. And there are running backs coming out of college in the draft every year that are ready to be running backs in the league. Um, so you have a surplus of top talent every year in the NFL draft. Um, your longevity or your basically your lifespan of worth in uh, of your service at that position is shrinking every year. Uh, if I'm the Vikings, why pay him? Um, I can go out and draft a uh, running back next year. You see it every year. O- over the past 10 years, running backs used to get picked pretty high in the first round. Yeah. You know, running backs were up there with the skill position, D-tackles, uh, quarterbacks, you know. When was the first running back drafted this year? 26? It was late. Yeah, it was mid, late. Mid-20s. So regardless of where the Vikings finish, they can pick up a top probably one of the top three backs in the draft. So you've got, you know, sufficient backups. Uh, you've got sufficient depth there. If I'm the Vikings, I don't pay him. I let him be a diva. If, if I'm <laughs> Delvin Cook, if I'm Delvin Cook, 
I try to narrow the gap a little in negotiation, um, knowing that, uh, you know, lifespan of a running back in the NFL isn't very long. No, it's good. I, you know, I, I won't ask Ethan because he's a Packers fan. I didn't care anyways, but um, I think that's a good take. Looking at the next part there, I, I don't know, I haven't asked you guys, if you watched Long Gone Summer, um, the 30 for 30 the other night, it was, it was awesome. Um, and it, it itself wasn't necessarily the best documentary I've ever seen in my life, but just bringing those thoughts back up was really, really interesting. Um, I think as we look at now in 2020, looking back on something in 19, you know, Luke, you were, you would have been pretty young there, you know, Ethan, you've been pretty young there too. Dave, you're about my age. Um, and I remember that pretty well. I just remember, I remember opening up the newspaper every single day to look and see if one of them hit a home run, you know, Sammy Sosa or Mark McGuire that summer. Um, it was a big deal at that point in time. And I think the, the thing that the doc brought up, the questions that brought up was really interesting because now how do we look back on that? You know, how do we look back on this thing when we were kids that was so huge to watch Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa fight every day, back and forth, back and forth? Who's going to beat Roger Maris's record? Um, you know, and Dave, I think you'll have a unique perspective because you're from North Dakota. I know that people from North Dakota have a different viewpoint based on the Roger Maris thing because that's where he's from and stuff like that. And I saw that same thing, too. But um, looking back on that summer, I don't know, Luke or Ethan, do you guys have any memories from that 98 summer at all and, and what you thought about that? Well, I was totally, seven. Totally. I'll go first. Yeah, because, I was uh, ten. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, just because I think I, I have you know short. We it was it was when I was young and, and that was Sports Center and all that was constantly playing in the house and that was something I constantly watched. So I mean I think I could remember um, the late night episodes of, of watching and tuning in, and seeing where it was at. But as far as, you know, I, I know I wasn't watching games or tuning in or doing any of that. And I don't think I was actually able to comprehend what was happening at that time. But I do vaguely remember just kind of the excitement of, of the back and forth and what, what everything kind of was happening there. You Luke, you're younger too. Do you remember that? Yeah, so I was 10. And uh, I remember it vividly. Best summer of my life. Um, I was a huge Ken Griffey Jr. fan growing up. Yeah, um, I was yeah. left-handed. You know, arguably the sweetest swing ever. Not even arguably, that's the sweetest swing. You know, and so as I'm watching this documentary the other night, I mean, the thing is just dripping in nostalgia. And you know, I, we've said it a bunch of times, but baseball is the ultimate healer. Um, you know, baseball brings people together. It's America's pastime. Um, you know. You, it really showed how after the sort of sour taste that the 1994 lockout season yep. had on public yep. perception, 98 really healed everybody. Everybody got together. Baseball was back. It brought people back. You know, baseball in, you know, post 9-11. Uh, Mike Piazza and the Mets hitting that, that walk-off home run. You had George Bush throwing out the first pitch. Mm -hmm. It was a healer. And I really hope that baseball – has another healing moment as we sort of move past the pandemic and the current situation that we're in. Um, but I remember, I remember that home run race vividly. Um, I'd watch uh, this week in baseball on Saturday, you <laughs> yeah. know, and I'd catch up on, yeah. on all the games. Um, it, it, all of the, the, uh, the night games were either the Cardinals or the Cubs because that those were the teams. That was the story of the, of the summer. Um, I was disappointed because I wanted Griffey to beat it. Um, that was my horse in the race, uh, but obviously we know how that turned out. Um, but to your point, I mean, how do we look back on it? Um, 
it's tough because we know steroids were involved and I know there are a lot of uh, purists who have an opinion. I know there are a lot of uh, more progressive fans who have, have their thoughts on it, but I, I think we can all agree that that era of baseball brought people together and it brought Absolutely. baseball back to the pin- the pinnacle of what it should be. And that's America's pastime. Um, you can't argue that. Now you can argue about legitimacy and legacy and, you know, painted stats and this and that, but those players healed a nation that had a really, really bad taste in their mouth uh, as it relates to major league baseball. It's uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was so fun to watch it just because it, you know, one, it took you back to remembering all that stuff, but it, it did. We were, it wasn't baseball was in a weird spot at that point in time coming out of the, the strike. And, and I think that people were kind of questioning whether they were going to come back or not or whatever. And, and it wasn't just, you know, that was one of the things that the doc made pretty clear is it wasn't just a baseball thing. I mean, people that, did, people that didn't even like baseball were, were inundated with that. I mean, they were paying attention to that every single day, you know, what was going on back and forth and back and forth. And the doc itself kind of turned almost into Mark McGuire documentary himself. You know, he was, he was part of it and stuff like that. And it was interesting to hear his, his take on it too. But you know, Dave, you were you were kind of around my age at that time. You know, I, so it probably you know was pretty evident to you what was going on at that point in time. But uh, looking at the dock and looking at everything, uh, how do you how do you feel about that 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 record and that chase? It was one of the best summers of baseball, I guess, in my life. Just as far as every night you turned on the television mm-hmm. to to see what was happening, and you know, down the stretch, every single one of their at bats, it didn't matter who was on the, the the game of the night, they cut in for it. Um, you know, much like they did with Barry Bonds when it came down to it. And, and just, you know, we, we just talked about the electricity of, uh, of of a possible World Series game. The same thing, you're sitting watching it and it cut in and it, it just oozed out of the television at you and it engulfed you. And you, you you sat there and just watched in amazement as these guys. And I don't remember how many times it happened, but sure enough, somebody would throw a pitch and it hit it 470. <laughs> yeah. It sat there in amazement of, wow, they just cut in and he just went deep, you know. Um you know, one of the things that, that I kind of forgot is the June that Sammy Sosa hit. He hit 20, 20 home runs 20. in the month of June. Yep. That is absolutely absurd. Um, steroids or not, you know, and I, I'm of the, which is kind of funny as a pitcher, I'm of the mindset that, you know, steroids, they help the ball go farther. I think just as many pitchers use steroids as hitters. Um, is there an asterisk? Yeah, there probably should be to an extent. Uh, but at the same point, these guys, these guys are at the top of the game. Baseball was flourishing. Uh, it created new fans. It created bigger fans. So, as a, as a, as a, as a North Dakotan, though, you know, I I know that the you yeah. know I, I've seen the Maris stuff in the mall there, and I, I you know I grew up my my grandpa golf with Roger Maris, and um, you know, sixty one is one of my favorite baseball movies. I think it's kind of an underrated baseball movie, and we saw everything that Roger went through that year chasing Babe. You know, just it it was not fun for him. It was a really awful experience and, you know, losing his hair and just being inundated, just being, you know, nasty uh, press and stuff like because They didn't want him to break Babe Ruth's record and stuff like that, you know, and then the, the doc did a pretty good job of showing, you know, McGuire was pretty, you know, he was, he, he was pretty uh, close to Maris's kids and family and stuff during that chase. Um, you know, the night that he broke it and stuff, he was with them and, and talked to them and stuff like that. Um, but you know, how much as a North Dakotan does that, do you look at that and say, well, he really didn't break Maris's record that year. You know, the, to me as a North Dakotan, the only thing that stings is because we don't get a whole lot of notoriety for anything. And that was like one of the things we had and now it's gone. Um, but you know, other than that, 
records are made to be broken. Um, you know, to me, the game has changed so much over the years. For the, for these guys to be able to do it, you know, and again, the doping thing puts it puts a little bit of a taint on it. But for these guys to be able to do it at at the level of pitching, um, at at this day and age, to me, blows my mind. You know, I always go back to like Babe Ruth. You know, how would Babe Ruth do in today's you know game? And it's it's a totally different game, so it's hard to even answer that. But you know, the game has changed so much, and for those guys to both do it um, is a note coat and it stung. But at the same point, uh, it was a heck of a lot of fun watching it go down. I guess. No. All right. So moving on to our last kind of part here, there, and I think it's kind of I'm 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 really interested to see what you guys all have to say because we're all from different states. Um, you know, me and Ethan here in South Dakota and you, you, Dave, North Dakota and Luke in Minnesota, but, uh, amateur baseball has really kind of come to the forefront of the news here recently, um, because it's been kind of that leader in coming back to sports, um, here inside, you know, I can only speak really to South Dakota, I guess, and, and what it's been here. Um, and it's, it's been that initial, here we go kind of thing here and and we've we've played for the most part um over the last probably three weeks now there's been games amateur baseball games uh in most small towns and 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 i you know amateur baseball in minnesota is huge you know i knew that growing up uh it's very big here in south dakota i know it's not quite as big in, in north dakota um but i know they're playing games there too but i, I guess my question is for you probably first for you luke because i know there's been some issues uh, in Minnesota where they've, they basically told them not to go ahead. And then some teams went ahead anyways, independently and have started to play games. Um, how, how have you seen that impact there? Uh, and has it been a positive or negative thing? Yeah. So not completely up to speed on all of the machinations of how this is going, but my understanding is that, uh, Teams must have permission uh, from a member of their uh, city council, I believe. Uh, so the, either the owner of the field or the owners of the field have to seek out permission from city council or basically get approval or get permission from uh, an official uh, to allow uh, baseball to be played in that stadium or that park. Um there are some teams that have gotten permission and have been cleared to play and others that haven't. And so um, if, if you are allowed permission to play, there are some certain rules. Uh, you can only have uh, 250 people in attendance or less. Um, I don't believe you're allowed to sell concessions. Um, so there's, there's some rules and guidelines of how, uh, you know, the fan um, structure can be maintained. Um but from what I understand and what I gather is that, you know, teams are playing. It's, you know, returning to some form of normalcy. Um, it hasn't opened up statewide, uh, and it is on a permission basis. So, you know, a lot of teams, a lot of park owners, a lot of uh, city officials are still waiting on more guidance from the governor before they sort of uh, move forward with any more openings. But uh, we have had cases where teams are playing um they're hosting teams uh whether it's minnesota teams i know some wisconsin teams have come over so it's sort of trickling in uh but it hasn't quite opened up in uh in earnest well i know you know south dakota is unique in itself because we've we're actually you know i coach a legion team here and we've been playing now for a couple of weeks um basically independently the, the american legion national 
syndicate said that they were not going to sponsor teams um, in state by state basis. Now we've kind of gone our own way. Um, you know, we've had we played five games, and I to be honest with you, we've had the biggest crowds we've ever had. Uh, yeah. Our first couple games, we had massive, massive <laughs> crowds, um, and and I think that that's part of why I wanted to ask this question because I think it was such a it was so obvious that people here just wanted to be out and do something normal. Um, and, and for baseball to be being played, you know, we're, we're lucky enough that here in winter, South Dakota, that we're at a very great baseball town. Um, and the first game was played here against a team that was three and a half hours away. And we had, we were packed, we were packed all the way around the stadium. We were packed in the stands. Um, people just, and I guarantee some of the people that were here probably hadn't seen a game for 10 years. But they wanted to be out. They wanted to see, you know, what was going on. They wanted to see some, just some kind of normalcy, I guess, is what kind of boiled down to. We've been quarantined for two months up to that point, and and here here's some normal things. We we go to a baseball field in in June and watch a baseball game, and we're able to do that. And so it was really, it's been really really cool. The kids have loved the kids have loved it. Um, they've loved having the big crowds. Um, we have some different things, you know, with umpires and, and, you know, we don't shake hands after the game. We tip hats and stuff like that. Um, you know, Ethan here coaches the amateur team in Cologne and they've seen huge crowds. Um, and, you know, it's been really cool that way. So I guess, I don't know, Ethan, what, what have you been, your thoughts, I guess, have you kind of seen this play out? Well, it was early. Um, I know a lot of Minnesota teams have come over and played a lot of the East River, South Dakota teams way early before Minnesota was, I think, granting anybody access. Um, but there was a couple teams that were playing before even the state granted, and we were in question if they were even going to let us play at all because of stuff like that, and that was when it was early May. Um, but since we've kind of kicked off, and like like you said, I think the Legion's kind of the same way. Um, they've granted us outside the dugout, being able to stand um, outside. Um, they encourage a lot of the, the batting gloves, no sharing equipment, Um I don't think there's any restrictions on the fans, but the hat tip, um, you have to, you have to do the hand sanitizer in the dugout to at least be offered. Um, but it was the same way for amateurs, you know, Clone's the second year team and we were kind of used to getting like 10, 15 people in the stands, most of them family. Uh, our first game in winter was absolutely huge back too. Huge. It, there was no place to park. The stands were probably three quarters of the way full. And that's something that a lot of amateur teams and even now, just with the Cologne home games, we're seeing probably, you know, 25, 50 people, which is unheard of in Cologne probably. So it's it's pretty crazy to think that just people wanting to get back into the normal of, of what a summer should be like, especially since we've lost Little League uh, for the most part of this area too. So, Dave, what's it been in North Dakota? You know, I know they're all playing, um, you know, being, I guess, uh, forced into retirement by our, our team here in town, folding and probably shoulder issues, which they was a good thing. Um, you know, there, there's nothing really going on around here in the Rockford. Carrington doesn't have a team. Closest team is probably in Jamestown, um, the AAA Merchants and the AAA Elks. Um, I know Corey, our, our old uh, Stampa Grounds, the Enderland Indies uh, are off and running. Um, a lot of the small towns are, are picking up teams. They're, they're getting their guys going. A lot of college players back home for the summer. Um, so I think it's a lot more active probably this year than maybe it has been in the past. Um, the biggest thing with North Dakota amateur baseball usually is, you know, come the end of the season um, or even street dance has been an issue with trying to get players to show up mm-hmm. uh, for your Saturday and Sunday games. So maybe this year, you know, things are going to look a little bit different, you know, with, with some of those activities not happening. 
Um, the other big kicker for, for me historically was the Class A state tournament uh, was always the same time as WeFest. So we'd always lose a handful of guys from our team to WeFest being that same weekend. Um, and numbers had always become an issue. Um, you know, it, it's not it's not near as popular, especially as far as the, uh, the amount of teams as it is in Minnesota or South Dakota. Uh, it's something I miss a lot, you know, especially you know, at the age we are, as you start watching your, your possible years of playing, start dwindling out. Uh, not having a team kind of kills me, but uh, uh, it is going. You know, the, the cases in North Dakota are so minimal compared to so many other places. Uh, I, I think everybody kind of around here is just back to normal. They're, they're cautious, um, but there isn't a whole lot of social distancing going on there anymore, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, that I mean, the first game that we had, even the first practice we had, it was just kind of a surreal feeling looking around saying can we do this <laughs> you know, you know, that was kind of the feeling or whatever and now that we've you know we're four or five games into the season it feels like things kind of just slip back into this is the way we've always done it so um i'm hoping that baseball can be that you know but at the same time it's kind of as a coach it's like okay well, what happens when we have our first case then what happens i mean then then where do we go from there what happens in the the team that you're going to play had a case or you know, so I, I we haven't dealt with that yet, but right now where we're at, it feels good to be back on the baseball field, and um, yeah, it just it, it had kind of a, an odd feeling to it to begin with, and and um, but I think baseball can be a really big healer, and that's why I think that going all the way back to our first segment talking about baseball, um, they have the opportunity really to to fix some things, um, you know, and I really hope that they do. So, all right, we'll wrap that up. We'll come back with our final bowl predictions. We'll go back to the final segment of uh, maybe next year, episode 20. Um, really quick here before we get to our bold predictions, I'm going to give a, a shout out to our sponsor, Minnesota Nice Marketing, who uh, is responsible for our uh, nextyearpodcast.com website. A little bit about them. Uh, in today's website world, website credibility judgments are 75% based on overall aesthetics, which means that the design and functionality of your website are more important than ever. First impressions are 94% design related. This is where Minnesota Nice Marketing comes into the picture. Minnesota Nice Marketing exists to help small businesses create a collaborative web and mobile page that's easy to understand, affordable, and helps you be found and seen online. Visit minnesotanicemarketing.com to get your free quotes for your new webpage or web redesign. And remember, 85% of adults think that the company's, a company's mobile website should be as good or better than their desktop website. Um, be sure to check us out at, at nextyearpodcast.com if you want to get a link to them. Go to next year or minnesotanicemarketing.com or go to the bottom of our website. There's a link there. Uh, our bold predictions for the evening, I guess, I don't know. I, we're all kind of with without sports really being full tilt. It's hard to make a prediction, but my I guess my bold prediction for the week will be that we will see Major League Baseball games by July 15th. That's my, that's my prediction. Ethan? Uh, I'm going to stick with what I know, and that's South Dakota Amateur Baseball. We travel to Plankton, Kimball White Lake. All three teams are three and one. Uh, Clone's going to sweep them, and we're going to take uh, top Pony Hill standings at the end of this week. I like that. I like it. I like that. Dave? Uh, we talked about Dalvin Cook earlier, um, and we've, we've used the word proration probably more than in any of our podcasts combined. Interesting stat. Uh, Christian McCaffrey played in 93% of his team's plays this year. 
Dalvin Cook played in 56 for the Minnesota Vikings. Um, Christian McCaffrey is making 16 million. If we're using our proration factor, which I think the Vikings are clearly doing in their initial offer of eight, I think uh, Dalvin Cook will sign. He will not hold out this season. He's going to sign for that 10 million dollar a year range, and it'll be done. Decent, decent. Yeah, I don't even know how I'm going to top that one. I will say though. Uh, not a bold prediction, but I was driving through a construction zone the other day, and they had stoplights on the ground. Uh, I think people are going to be freaked out at how stop how large stoplights actually are. I think they're <laughs> roughly four to five feet tall. Um, it freaked me out as I drove by at how large stoplights are. Maybe my bold prediction is that people get freaked out enough that they change the design of stoplights. Um, <laughs> the- my my, uh, they might, they may go horizontal instead of vertical. Um, my sports bold prediction is, uh, I think Tom Brady wins the MVP. I think Tom Brady wow. wins the MVP out of Tampa Bay this year. Um, he's got his, he got his, his bunk mate, Bobby Gronkowski back. You know, he's weirder than ever. I know, a a, a beer came out in the New England area called Traderade. Um, all, you know, it's just fuel to the fire. I think Tom loves it. He thrives off of it. Um, I know he doesn't believe in sunscreen. He believes in drinking a lot of water to fend off UV rays. He's weird enough. He's weird enough and good enough. Um, he's an old man in Florida, which is pretty on brand uh, for senior citizens. So I think Tom Brady thrives in Tampa, and I think he's the MVP of the league this year. Wow, that that is a bold prediction. I love it. All right. Well, thanks for listening. I know it's been a, a few weeks since we've been here, but uh, check us out uh, at uh, Apple Podcast, Anchor, Spotify, all places. Just uh, type in maybe next year. We pop right up and catch us out our first 20 episodes. uh, And uh, we'll uh, talk to you next time around. Hopefully it'll be pretty soon. Thanks a lot.